up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, we'll learn about sepsis, a potentially life-threatening infection complication. The most vulnerable are children under a year, elderly adults, and those who are on immune suppression, be it chemotherapy or genetic conditions. Then we'll discuss research underway at Upstate that uses saliva to help diagnose autism in children. There's not a cure for autism, but what it is oriented around is actually giving them a level of functioning where they're not as dependent on other individuals. And we'll hear about a community-based food system called Food Plan CNY. It's a collaborative effort to assess how, how the food system is working and identify ways to assess the critical issues, including some opportunities, opportunities for improving public health and also environmental quality. HealthLink on Air has all this and more coming up right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, medicine, and science with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, an autism researcher discusses how saliva may be able to help diagnose autism in children. Then, two professors from Syracuse University and SUNY ESF talk about a community-based food system called Food Plan CNY. But first, a pediatrician talks about the improvements Upstate has made related to the potentially life-threatening infection complication known as sepsis. Upstate has been recognized for improvements related to sepsis, which is a potentially life-threatening infection complication. Here to talk about sepsis is one of the doctors who leads the anti-sepsis efforts at Upstate, Dr. Melissa Schieffer. She's an assistant professor of pediatrics. Thank you for being here. Welcome. My pleasure. Well, um, we should begin with an explanation of sepsis. Um, what it, It's an infection complication. How does that work? What is it? Uh, sepsis is an overwhelming infection, uh, and your body's response to it uh, spins out of control. So the inflammatory cascade is so robust that it causes complications, including in its end stage, shock and even death. So it so can be a very serious thing. Do you start, does a patient start out like with some sort of, I don't know, like a cold or some minor infection and then sepsis develops or how do, how do you, how does? It can be that way and it can start all at once too. So it's the body's overwhelming response to an infection, usually a bacterial infection. Uh, so colds are viral infections. Um, it can be an overwhelming response to a viral infection, but more often starts with a bacterial infection and then the body's response to it becomes overwhelming to the point that it causes damage in and of itself. So no matter if you're being treated for the bacterial infection, it's separate from that? It Treatment does help, um, if that's what you mean. So if we treat the inflammatory response early um, and give antimicrobials early, it's been shown to help stop the overwhelming inflammatory response and stop the shock and help the patient recover. So it is possible to get it under control. Okay, so let me under, like if, if I have a bacterial infection and I'm being treated for that, I could still have, develop sepsis. You could, but if you're being treated with antimicrobials and under a doctor's care, that's one of the things that they'll be looking for to make sure your okay. treatment is going well. Okay. Well, um, tell me who is most vulnerable for, to sepsis? Uh, so anyone can get sepsis, and a uh, consistent percentage of our, of our patients are the otherwise healthy. But the most vulnerable are children under a year, 
elderly adults, although I'm a pediatrician, so I don't, don't deal with those anymore. Um, and those who are on immune suppression for whatever reason, be it chemotherapy uh, or genetic conditions, anyone who's vulnerable to infection is, is vulnerable to having an overwhelming infection as well. So how do you know if someone has it? Is it easy to tell or? It's not. So the first signs are fever and tachycardia, especially in a child. We actually see that fairly frequently with minor infections. So that's what makes it really tricky. So fever and uh, fast heart rate. Yes. Is te okay. Sorry. Technical okay. words. Yes. Fever and over uh, a heart fever rate. And inappropriately racing. fast heart rate okay. um, is the first sign. And that's very not specific. Lots of people have that who don't have sepsis. Uh, or who won't progress to an overwhelming infection. So to know if you're having progression to an overwhelming infection and that overly robust immune response, you would see uh, changes in the skin where the uh, blood flow doesn't go all the way out to the fingertips very well. Mm. Um, you would see decreased urine output. So in a baby, fewer wet diapers is the thing your pediatrician will often tell you to look for. Um, and can happen for other reasons, but taken together with a, with a bad infection is, is a serious sign to look for. And then um, when you're having trouble getting blood flow to your organs, children especially won't act right. They'll be too sleepy, overly irritable, and that's another thing that pediatricians will often tell parents to look for when they're treating an infection is if your baby isn't acting right, I want to know right away. Um, so that's, those are the things to look for as far as signs that the infection is progressing into something like sepsis. So does sepsis progress quickly? Like, is it an urgent thing if, I mean, it has to be looked at and dealt with quickly? Yes. Um, so if you're having those signs of fewer wet diapers and not acting right, you need to see, be seen by a doctor right away, even in the emergency room, um, because rapid treatment uh, can make outcomes much, much better. The sooner you get treated, the better. Um, are there any concrete, like, tests that say, oh, this is sepsis, like blood work or things like that? Um, in adults, there is a test in the blood work that we use to tell if this is a more serious infection. It doesn't hold up for children. So for children, if they have an infection and the signs of sepsis, that's, that's all we need. That's all you need. And that's all we can have. Um, we do do blood cultures and urine cultures to tell if there's any bacteria in those sites because that's something that you can't tell just by looking at the person. Um, and we'll do other, other tests and exams to look for bacteria in other places, like if you have signs of appendicitis or a bone or joint infection. Those are things that we can, that we can usually tell just by, just by a physical exam. Um, so we do our best to look for infections that are in there that we can't tell. Um, but there's not, there's not a sepsis level. I wish there was. It would make our job so much easier. <laughs> well, you mentioned um, antimicrobials as a medication. Um, how, how long does it take to treat this and how, or to recover from it? Well, it's different depending on the infection. Um, most people that are early in their course and just starting to show signs of infection respond very quickly, um, which is actually makes treating sepsis uh, very satisfying. Um, but it depends on how advanced the infection is and where the infection came from to begin with. So it, it can be, uh, gosh, usually a week or two to treat a serious infection with, with antibiotics. Um, are you hospitalized for that? Or some people have to be hospitalized during that time? Or? Um, frequently, yes. Yeah, okay. almost always, especially if you're having those later signs like not acting right. 
um, you, and decrease urine output, you're, you're hospitalized for at least the beginning part of your treatment. And hopefully you see improvement in patients, but if, if things aren't working well, um, what sorts of things do you see? Because this is life-threatening. Yeah, yeah. So if the infection has become overwhelming um, or they're not, the patient isn't responding to antibiotics and fluids, which is the mainstay of treatment, uh, we have them go to our pediatric ICU. And the pediatric critical care group has done a ton of work both locally and across the country and even worldwide to try and determine what the best course of treatment is for the various types of infections and the various types of patients they see with overwhelming infections. Um, so we hand them off to our, our ICU colleagues and they have even more than just fluids and antibiotics, uh, treatment modalities available to support the blood pressure, help the patient breathe. Um, okay. So right. they, they, when they get involved, they're high energy. Okay. <laughs> very attentive, and they, they take their job very seriously. So for those who um, recover from sepsis, do mm -hmm. they have, is there lasting damage, or is, does that set them up for other reactions later in life? So reactions later in life, I don't think we know that. Uh, it depends on where the infection was. So if it started off as an appendicitis, having a big infection in, you know, appendicitis is in your belly, so having a big infection in your belly can have further complications from that inf inflammation healing. And same thing with um, bone and joint infections. When, you, when you're healing up a bone or joint, that it creates some scar. That's what our body does. So it depends on where the infection was. Um, but the inflammatory process in itself, once it's treated and recovering, it doesn't, especially in kids, there usually are no long-lasting uh, for most people. Okay, good. Well, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Melissa Schaefer about sepsis. Um, so I, I've read about the incidence of sepsis that it seems to be on the rise in the United States. Any idea why that might be? We don't entirely know. Uh, part of it is definitely recognition that we're realizing that's happening more and more and we're writing it down more and more so people can go back in, the, in our records and see, oh, they recognized it this many times in this year and this many times in this year. The, uh, the code for recognizing sepsis was only developed about 15 years ago, so using it has, has become more and more common, especially now that state and federal uh, regulators and quality groups are looking at making sure that we're doing a good job of recognizing and treating it when it's present. Um, so part of it is just that we're, it was always there and we weren't calling it sepsis or we weren't recognizing that Tracking. that's what we were doing. Okay. The other thing is our, uh, our immune suppressive drugs have gotten much, much better in the last 10 or 20 years. So our treatments, including chemotherapy uh, for cancers and biologics, like you'll see the ads that, that say side effects include tuberculosis and hepatitis B, they're altering your immune system, those drugs that have infections as a side effect. And the development and uh, use of those has, has only gone up in the last, I'd say, 10 or 15 years. And when you alter your immune system, you you become at risk for sepsis. Set yourself up for... Huh. Yeah, so I think that's part of it, although I don't have the exact numbers for what percentage that accounts for and what percentage is just more recognition. Well, how big of a concern is sepsis for hospitals in general? You said that we've really ha only had a code for the last 15 years, but it's been a concern for hospitals, right? Yeah, so it is either the biggest, I believe it's the biggest cause of death for hospitalized patients, especially in adults. 
And then studies in children have shown that it, it accounts for a, a significant percentage of hospitalization days for children too, even if they're hospitalized for other things, having an infection as a, as a late complication when you're hospitalized for something else is a huge, huge issue. It might extend your stay. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely extends your stay. Um, so I know it's a dreaded uh, occurrence in patients who are being treated for chemotherapy that they might get an infection that would delay their treatment, extend their hospital stay, and preventing that as much as we can is one of the, the issues that we're trying to tackle. And we're part of uh, Children's Hospital Association Collaborative uh, called Improving Pediatric Sepsis Outcomes, IPSO. Okay. <laughs> um, and uh, making sure that we prevent sepsis when we can and treat it rapidly when it's present is, is their main aim. So let's talk about some of the improvements that Upstate has implemented related to sepsis. What are we doing differently now than, I don't know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago? Well, we never used to screen all of our patients. And the New York State Initiative uh, that started in 2013, 2014, um, that said, you know, we should screen all, all ED and inpatients for, for sepsis because this is happening more than we were realizing before, like we talked about. Um, so we're doing that now, and that was part of the New York State Initiative. Um, and we also have a protocol for when it's present, what are we going to do, and so that it happens consistently and it happens quickly. And all staff, when they join at Upstate, are taught what their part in that protocol is, um, even if they don't have a part, just to be aware of it, that this is something we're on the lookout for and this is what we do when we see it. So do you think it's making a difference? I do, and I have the numbers to support that, although our techniques are getting more refined now that we're part of the Children's Hospital Association Collaborative. Um, our time to deliver the first dose of antibiotics when someone comes in with an overwhelming infection dropped to less than an hour. An hour was our goal uh, on average when we first started implementing our protocols and our, our screening and recognition uh, procedures. And we also dropped our time to the first fluid bolus uh, based on the same uh, improvements. So fluid bolus, what is, what is that? Well, you get an IV, just a regular old little straw in your arm, um, and we give fluids as fast as we can. So when you usually think of an IV, it's hooked up to a pump, like you know, mm, sort of like you right. see on TV with the tree. Um, so regular fluids can be delivered that way if you just you know can't eat before surgery or whatever, or you're dehydrated for some reason. That's a great way to get your fluids. But if we want to give fluids fast, like in sepsis, um, we give them as fast as we can. And the standard is under five minutes to get. 20 ml per kilo, so an adult about a liter of fluid very quickly. Interesting. Um, and so our nurses are all trained to not use the pump and deliver it either by hand where they're manually pushing a syringe full of fluid into the patient um, or using uh, a bag with a blood pressure cuff wrapped around it to get the, to get get the fluid in as fast as possible. Yeah, and then we assess to see how the patient responded. And they respond very quickly, which is really satisfying. They, you really see that, you know, the baby who's lethargic all of a sudden wake up and cry, and that's just very rewarding to see. Wow, that's exciting that it's working so well. Thank you so much for being here. My guest has been Dr. Melissa Schaefer, an assistant professor of pediatrics at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.
Next up, can a saliva test help diagnose autism? You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Research taking place at Upstate Medical University in Syracuse may lead to the development of a quick painless tool to help diagnose autism in children. Using a swab like a Q-tip, scientists are collecting saliva from the mouths of children and then analyzing it for tiny particles called microRNA. Here to talk about how the work is going is Frank Middleton, an associate professor of pediatrics, neuroscience and physiology, psychiatry and biochemistry at Upstate. Welcome. Thanks for being here. It's my pleasure, Amber. Thank you for having me. So right now, as things stand, is there a a test that diagnoses autism? Currently, there are behavioral tests that are used as gold standards to diagnose autism. These require approximately uh, a two-hour session with developmental pediatric group or a developmental pediatrician or a well-trained practitioner. This also, unfortunately, requires about a 9- to 12-month waiting time in order to get one of those appointments scheduled. And so that's part of the, the difficulty with the current situation. And these behavioral um, diagnostic measures, because they take so long, um, delay the potential intervention of services that might be helpful for those children. So that's why I was going to ask you why it's important to diagnose it early, but how, how do you define autism? What is autism? So autism has undergone a few different evolutions in what we use to describe or define the specific phenotypic features. Uh, the current conception of it has as its, its core uh, deficits in social communication, and that is something that's stood up throughout the several decades leading up to the current day. There are surveys that are used that are very brief, um, 20 and 30 item questionnaire screening tools that are commonly used in pediatric practice or general um, medical practice that are used to screen children who potentially could show early signs of deficits in the social communication and some other domains as well. Those right now are the best that we can offer for screening tools. And if a child has a positive result on one of those screening tools, then they would be referred for a more involved evaluation, and that would be the formal diagnostic interview that would take months to actually schedule and then several hours to perform. Wow. So why do you say um, it's important to diagnose early? The critical piece that we've learned from research on subjects with autism spectrum disorder is that you can improve their level of functioning a great deal through targeted behavioral interventions. And one of the best known is applied behavioral um, therapy and or applied behavioral analysis, ABA. This has shown to be 
really a life-changing intervention for children. Um, and it doesn't cure their autism. There's not a cure for autism, but what it is oriented around is actually giving them a level of functioning where they're not as dependent on other individuals. And they're able to function at a level um, that leads them to a more fulfilling life. So, so an intervention early in childhood that can last forever for that, them. That's absolutely true. Wow. Well, this, um, this idea of using a saliva sample, you were on HealthLink previously discussing um, a saliva test that diagnoses concussion. So does, does this work the same way? The saliva test that we've been working on for the past five years now um, is essentially quite similar to what we described previously with concussion. It's a rapid molecular analysis of a subset of, of molecules that you find in everyone's saliva. And we believe that these particular molecules can be used as a diagnostic or screening aid in identifying those children who are outside the norm um, from an epigenetic point of view rather than a purely behavioral point of view based on the questionnaires. Now these tools that we use or that we've been developing, we have to validate against the best behavioral standards. So when we say we have a tool that we've use saliva um, to diagnose or to screen for autism, we know the accuracy because we're actually doing the behavioral testing and evaluation on the same children, the same way that we would be doing testing and evaluation of children who might have a concussion and relating those molecular changes we find in the saliva to those symptoms and those behavioral features. So it's very similar, it's parallel, we're not seeing the same molecules changed in autism that we see changed in concussion, but we don't see the same behavioral changes either. Right. Now, and it's uh, microRNA that you're looking at? That's right. What is microRNA? So microRNAs are short pieces of ribonucleic acid that are released by all cells in the body. They have activities inside those cells related to regulating the amount of protein that's actually synthesized and the stability of other RNAs inside those cells. We didn't know about microRNAs 25 years ago, 20 years ago. It still hadn't hit the textbooks. 10 years ago, still hadn't hit the textbooks. Um, microRNA is, is not in the common dialogue, but microRNAs have essentially resulted in, in at least two Nobel Prizes now. The importance of microRNAs cannot be underscored enough. We know they're critically involved in every biological process inside cells. Why do we look at saliva for microRNA? Specifically because microRNAs don't stay in the cells that make them. They're released into extracellular fluids and they travel throughout the body. So we could measure microRNAs in blood. We chose not to in children with autism because it would be easier to obtain a saliva sample. Sure. But we could, and we could use other biofluids as well. But the saliva makes it an easy way to retrieve what you need. So. That's right. So it's, it's no more invasive than a common strep test that um, a child might undergo 
with a swab in the back of the throat. In our case, we're just collecting saliva in the front of the mouth with our swabs. Is it a test that tells you a yes or a no, or is it a test that tells you a severity? So our test generates a probability, which is very similar to the severity that you're referring to. The likelihood that a child can be accurately categorized or classified in the autism spectrum compared to developmental delay or compared to a typically developing control. Interesting. Well, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with autism researcher Frank Middleton, um, an associate professor at Upstate. Now, this study that you're talking about is still ongoing, and people could still get involved in that. How would they go about doing that, and why would they want to? So the study is very much ongoing. We've finished really the first phase of our recruitment, and we're beginning the next phase. We have presently uh, completed our molecular studies and behavioral analyses on approximately 200 children with autism, approximately 75 with developmental delay, and more than 110 typically developing controls. And we're just now putting out the papers to substantiate our findings. But we're launching a much larger recruitment effort that will essentially triple those numbers headed towards 600 children with autism, 600 with developmental delay, 600 typically developing controls. The way that people locally in the central New York area could get involved in the study is really through going to our website, which is upstate.edu slash autism study, and simply filling out a contact form. And there are, there's phone numbers listed on the website as well, so they could call directly. We need participation from families, from parents and their children, in order to make the study as useful and as powerful as it can. Now, what age children are you looking at? So the study is really focused on ages 2 to 6 for the discovery of biomarkers that might be most beneficial when the interventions that could also be most beneficial would likely be initiated. So we had worked in older um, populations. So older children uh, with an average age of around 9 or 10, we've done some pilot work at that at the beginning of our studies, but we've really turned our attention to the younger age groups now because we want to facilitate early intervention. Okay. So if uh, someone signs up and is um, accepted for the study, what's involved in that? How much of a commitment do they make? So the typical scenario would involve uh, the family traveling to the Upstate Medical University campus. We have free parking for them at, inside the Institute for Human Performance building. Once they're in that building, they would go to a, an evaluation room on the second floor, and for about an hour and a half, the child would undergo a series of standardized assessments that are used as both screening tools and for the formal evaluation of autism. We would also obtain saliva sample from the child at that time. So the evaluation, it might sound a little scary or cause uh, some questions to arise in a parent's mind. The evaluation is essentially a set of play scenarios that range from 10 to 12, depending on the child's developmental state. And 
the rater or evaluator goes through these scripted scenarios with the child and sees how they, for example, uh, communicate back and forth with them or with toys or with objects in, or how they respond to a story that they're being told. And this is a standardized assessment tool called the Autism Diagnostic Observation Scale that we use. Do the uh, families get the results of the tests afterward? So we provide families with, with feedback from our assessments. We can't provide them feedback from the molecular studies because we're still trying to understand exactly what we can learn from those. But at this point, we do offer families the ability to receive a summary of the behavioral findings, and we send it to no one else. So it's totally at their discretion if they want to share this with their child's psychologist or pediatrician um, or use it in any other way. Okay. Well, if things work out the way you hope with this testing, just flash forward into the future, how do you envision it being used? Would it be the definitive test for autism, or how, how would it work in? That's a great question. So one of the exciting things on the horizon about measuring microRNAs is that we now have tools to actually measure them at point of care. And so you can envision essentially like a rapid strep test. A child could go in and have a swab test done, and within 10 minutes, they would be able to obtain an answer if there is a molecular signature in their saliva that supports the diagnosis of autism or developmental delay, or there's an absence of a molecular signature for that. And that requires our ability to identify what the critical microRNAs are that we need to measure. And we're about halfway there at this point, I would estimate. But the point-of-care technology that rapidly measure microRNAs is here now, and it's being implemented in other diseases and conditions. So we're very excited. We think that could be the future. Would it be like a screening? Could it be used as a screening tool almost? It could absolutely be used as a, as a screening, potentially even before the child is old enough to walk or might normally talk. Um, we don't know the limits of how, how low we can go at wow. this point. Very interesting. Well, thank you so much for being here. My guest has been Frank Middleton, an associate professor at Upstate who researches autism. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Hi, I'm psychologist Dr. Rich O'Neill with this week's checkup from the neck up, do-over or fill-in-the-blank. Well, folks, let's play a little word association game. When I say a word or phrase, you say the next word or phrase that pops into your head. Here we go. Adult onset. And you'd probably say diabetes. Right. Adult onset diabetes. Type 2 diabetes, which develops in adulthood from unhealthy behavior over our lifetime. But now, you may not know that adult onset also applies to many of the other top 10 causes of premature disability and death, which our behavior often play a big part in as well, like heart, heart attacks and stroke. In fact, 
a lot of us think like comedian Rodney Dangerfield, who said something like, so you, you think if I take really good care of myself, I'm going to get very, very sick and die? <laughs> yeah, Rodney. Unfortunately, that kind of thinking keeps us from making healthy changes. Luckily, more and more research is showing that how well we take care of ourselves can make a big difference in staying healthy and how long we live healthy, even if we haven't always been goody-goodies healthy behavior-wise. For example, there's a new study of almost 74,000 healthy men and women who changed their diet in middle age to be more or less like scientifically supported healthy diets, such as the Mediterranean diet or the DASH, dietary approaches to stop hypertension diet. The researchers evaluated the diets over 12 years and then followed these folks for another 12 years. Those who'd improved their diet the most were up to 17% less likely to die for any reason in those 12 years, while those who ate worse were up to 14% more likely to die. And we're not talking about complete diet makeovers here, just relatively small doable changes like substituting one serving of nuts or beans for red or processed meat daily. Conclusion, even if you've been eating crummy until middle age, you get a do-over and can make your life years longer and healthier. You can be an adult onset, healthy eater, liver longerer. B.S. <laughs> if you want to check out the details of this study, we posted the link on our website at healthlinkonair.org. I'm Rich O'Neill. Thanks for checking in. Coming up next, understanding the food system in central New York on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Medical University. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Here with me today are the co-directors of Food Plan CNY, uh, Evan Weissman and Matthew Pottiger. Uh, Evan is an assistant professor of food studies in the Department of Public Health, Food Studies and Nutrition at the Falk College at Syracuse University. And Matthew is a professor in the Department of Landscape Architecture at SUNY Environmental Science and Forestry. And he spoke recently about a community-based food systems approach for improving Syracuse's food environments. Welcome to you both. Thank, Thank you. you. Great. 
Well, when we say the phrase food system, what are we talking about? Well, I, you think about um, the food that we eat is connected to a whole series of other processes and spaces from producing food and farms and fields and soils to uh, storing it and distributing it, getting food to markets, and then all the places where we, we find and eat and consume food and the, the sites after, after consumption, compost and the sewage system. So those, these are all linked as part of a system, and they, they shape places, they shape landscapes. The thing is, we don't always see these connections. So it's important to start thinking systemically and, and find these, these linkages to see how it works. So that's a lot bigger than I would think when you think about a food system. You think of maybe a farm, a grocery store, and my table, but right. there's a lot more to it right. than that. And there's a lot of spaces that are really important that you don't see, like the distribution warehouses or the processing facilities. And they can all have an impact on uh, how viable the farming is. So what is this um, community-based food systems approach? Well, when we're talking about community-based food systems, what we're really thinking about are are place-based food systems. Oftentimes, we hear the term a local food system or a regional food system. We prefer the term community-based because it really centers people, understanding sort of the ways in which uh, the food system and the food economy can can work for people and, and works because of people. And the end goals of these systems are, of course, to, to create the foods that people need. So we really like to center sort of people and places with the ways in which we're thinking about uh, opportunities for strengthening, strengthening these systems. So a lot of restaurants these days, it's kind of a big deal to, to say that you're locally, you know, you're locally sourced produce or whatever, um, and there's this local food movement. Is that part of that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think what we're doing when we center community and people is understanding that the term local is a really a- ambiguous geographical concept that doesn't have a, a clear definition. Um, and, and some of the sort of driving factors are the same, but it's important that we're a little bit more concrete in what we're talking about uh, and, and certainly more deliberate and the sorts of interventions we would like to see happen in these sorts of systems. Yeah. I guess one thing that's happened is uh, uh, we've lost a lot of the connections to what it, local food systems. Uh, for instance, we don't. Many of us don't realize that we are in the middle of one of the really important agriculturally productive areas of the Northeast. Um, but so much of the food that we eat is coming from globally, from across the nation. And uh, we've lost a lot of food system infrastructure and some of these these connections. So it's really about rebuilding these uh, regional and local connections at, at different scales. So the food we're growing here is going elsewhere, and we're bringing in food from other places. Um, that happens. Huh. <laughs> yes. Interesting. <laughs> That's happening. So this um, Food Plan CNY project, what is that all about? Um, it's a project funded by the Onondaga County Agricultural Council, and it's a collaborative effort to assess how how the food system is working and identify ways and uh, identify ways to assess the critical issues, and including some opportunities, economic opportunities for improving the system, opportunities for improving public health, and also environmental quality through and, the food system. And we've been really deliberate in approaching this project through what we 
uh, term an assets-based approach. So we often think about Syracuse as a city uh, plagued by many massive problems, a city with a lot of deficits, um, or a region with a lot of deficits, and, and certainly that is clearly the case in, in many instances. But when we're looking at the food system, we can think about the assets that exist here, the resources, the projects, the programs, the people who are doing really great work, uh, and, and try to identify and think about ways in which to best leverage these sorts of assets to achieve uh, better economic outcomes, uh, better environmental outcomes, and better public health outcomes. Now, as part of that process, we're not only gathering information and data from many different sources, we've interviewed over 50 uh, key stakeholders in the local food system, and we're about to have a series of public meetings with the stakeholders as part of this really community-based process. So I understand it's an ongoing process, but are there, you call them assets, are there things you can point to that are working well in central New York in, in regards to food right now? Yeah. Well, again, I, we have a um, great productive landscape, uh, excellent soils and, and large areas of connected really good soils, and we have uh, emerging diversity in, in agricultural production. That's, that's a starting point. Uh, and, we're, and we've really been struck through our, our interviewing process at, at the, the um, ways in which people are working really hard to ensure um, that the system remains viable. And what we're recognizing, of course, is that a lot of these efforts uh, are conducted in silos. And our hope is to do some, some work to better coordinate the, the individuals and, and organizations and businesses um, and, and, and political efforts and policy efforts that are worked working um, simultaneously, but not necessarily in a coordinated fashion. Mm -hmm. So we've really been struck by the ingenuity uh, yeah. and the resiliency of our food system yeah. uh, and want to see the ways in which these um, uh, efforts can best be connected. Okay. This is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Matthew Podiger uh, from the uh, SUNY ESF. And we also have Evan Weissman from the Falk College at Syracuse University. Thank you. Um, now, recently in Syracuse, we've heard about the closing of No James Market on the near west side um, of Syracuse. What does that do to the food system or in this area? Well, first of all, No James was unique and one of the few independent grocers that was left. Um, up until the 1960s, we most of the food came through in, in Syracuse came through the regional market, and uh, then was distributed and uh, to independent grocers. And he, he, no James was one of the last ones left, and, and it was community scaled. It fit the community. It did not have a large parking lot. People could walk to it, and he really worked over the years to also have. Uh, linked with the community in terms of culturally appropriate food. So it, it leaves a big gap in the system, if you want to add. Yeah, and I think, you know, the, the closing of, of uh, No Doom's supermarket is uh, a sad end to a long story that's been playing out across communities throughout the United States with uh, restructuring of the food system, um, with consolidation uh, in, in food retailing. In private Greater privatization um, and, and privatization and and what we are really sort of interested in is is not sort of pointing fingers or pitting one community against another um, because we think all people in all neighborhoods should have adequate access to the foods they need to live a healthful life 
But here's a really good case where some coordination and deliberate policy uh, could have foreseen maybe the unintended consequences of supporting a grocery store in, in a neighboring community. And so, uh, you know, one of our hopes is that the this, this project that we have underway and the outcomes of this project are to uh, ensure these sorts of uh, unintended consequences don't happen again. Um, because if, if political leaders are, are um, doing the right thing and, and working to support community initiatives around food, which is really important, we want to make sure that, that it's not detrimental, that outcomes are not detrimental to other communities. Sure. Well, are there uh, things that we can learn about food systems from other cities? Are, you, are there other... Yeah, uh, and really the last 20, 25 years, there's been a lot of development in terms of food system thinking and work uh, across the country and other cities. We don't have to go too far. We can go down the, the turnpike to Buffalo, and they've been working with food system planning. They have a food policy council, um, and just really different ways to coordinate the different sectors of the food system. Uh, Toronto is one of the, the longest-standing food policy council uh, at work and so there's a lot of examples um, and, and in what's happening in, in, in uh, these cities especially across North America uh, is a great deal of policy innovation so that um, policy makers are really focused on thinking about the best ways to intervene in a food system using you know tools of law policy and planning to ensure that the that the food systems of those communities are best serving um, citizens in those communities and the residents of those communities. So thinking about ways in which to uh, enhance the existing infrastructure to uh, make foods more affordable and more available, or thinking about ways in which um, uh, aggregation can occur so that local farming products uh, can reach uh, kids in schools, or mm -hmm. that think about ways in which large institutions, uh, of which we have many in Syracuse, uh, can intervene um, through their procurement practices to create more viable economic opportunities. Um, mm -hmm. So we see a lot of policy innovation yeah. occurring around food and thinking mm -hmm. about how it connects to all of these other sorts of issues. Yeah. Everything for Toronto, for instance, everything from looking at uh, policies that would help to protect farmland and promote uh, diverse agriculture in the area around Toronto to down at the street level we're changing the licensing for uh, food carts to uh, to encourage fr uh, fresh produce uh, to be sold on the street as opposed to previous licensing which were limited to processed foods. Wow. Okay. Well, do you have some examples of what you th what could change here if you had a system in place that, that you aspire to? What, what would we see different? Uh, one, as Evan already mentioned, some form of uh, aggre aggregating local food, and so it then can be distributed to institutions or also other small small scale markets. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think one of our, our clear outcomes would be, uh, increased uh, economic opportunities in the food sector um, so that you know small business owners um, have uh, uh, better vi viability and are able to create jobs and find um, good qualified employees. We would see a, a great deal more um, of, of our agricultural products from central New York uh, ending up on grocery store shelves uh, throughout the region. Um, we would see um, 
policies that would do more to protect farmland uh, in central New York to, to control some of our, our urban suburban growth. Um, so we really want to see um, people starting to, to come together and using food in, as, a, as a common denominator and think about the ways in which uh, collaboration can enhance the outcomes of our food system. And you think of it, food, it it's a, can help build communities. It, it's just an essential thing for, for everyone. It should be an essential part of, of community design and planning. Well, looking back historically, didn't, I mean, food stayed local, right? And we didn't have the ability to ship it in places. So are there lessons? Are we, are we trying to kind of go back and take some of the best of what we had before? Yeah, we can look historically, too, about uh, you know, what infrastructure served serve the area. And at the same time, we also have some new opportunities now, some, some new technologies. Uh, and uh, is also we can look back for precedence for food system planning here in Syracuse. Um, Syracuse was, and Onondaga County was actually the, the uh, place where we, we had the second food policy council in the country. The first one was in Knoxville, Tennessee. And Syracuse, Onondaga County was the second one in the mid-1980s. So we're kind of revisiting that revisiting. and um, new, new context, new situation. Well, thank you both for being here. My guests have been Matthew Podiger, a professor at SUNY ESF, and a professor, assistant professor Evan Weissman from Syracuse University's Falk College. They're co-directors of the Food Plan CNY. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Humor is both a balm and a boot for those suffering the indignities of illness and rehabilitation. Joanna White, a music professor and poet from Michigan, reminds us that laughing can be sweet revenge in her very short poem, Cognitive Testing. You drone the list, lamp, donkey, yellow. I try to latch them down, but they line up in threes, fall off the end, and you are still going, ball, apple, truck. Count back from 100 by sevens, you demand, and wonder at my tears, which is when I know you are in the wrong business. Well, you won't win any math contests, you tell me, when I come for my results. And I want to open my mouth to say, that I think it is a pretty good guess that you, on the other hand, won't win any poetry contests. Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week, HealthLink discusses how several SUNY schools are helping establish a sustainable village and learning community in Haiti.
If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith. Thanks for listening.